We return again this morning to the final verses of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. I think it'll be the third time that we read this together as we've examined this text in detail over the last weeks. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Having grown up in the densely populated state of New Jersey, I learned to drive in one of the more hostile traffic environments in America. Between the New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway and the occasional foray across the George Washington Bridge or the Lincoln Tunnel into New York City, I've been in my share of close calls and quick decisions. When you add the fact that I now live in Los Angeles and use some of the busiest freeways in the country on a daily basis, I suppose it's rather a miracle that I'm still alive. <laughs> in fact, there are many times while driving when I consciously thank the Lord for the fact that I was spared from this or that potential accident. I certainly know that my passengers have improved their prayer lives uh, <laughs> while driving with me from time to time. Well, because of this rather ridiculous what would you call it, vehicular heritage. While I'm driving, I often make it a point to observe the different patterns that other drivers follow and the different decisions that they make when faced with a certain situation. Sometimes I imagine what I would do if I had to get out of somebody's way real quick, if they made a turn, uh, merge into my lane because they needed to get out of the way. I, I think to myself, okay, do I have enough room? Uh, is there, what should I be doing? I'm, I'm preparing myself, going through these scenarios in my mind. Now, some of you might think that's a little strange, and granted, you are probably right. But I do it because I've had enough experience to know that in certain situations, I have only a fraction of a second to react. I need to be so prepared to avoid an accident that my reactions become second nature. Because in the moment, I won't have time to think clearly or dispassionately evaluate my options. The craziness of the moment simply won't allow it at least not where I'm driving. And the same is true for Christian suffering. I don't believe it's possible to overstate how important it is to have a rock-solid theology of suffering before one actually enters into that suffering. Because in the midst of some exceedingly painful trial, the craziness of the moment often doesn't allow for cool contemplation and sound theological reasoning, even though that's what we should strive for always. The solid foundation that keeps you grounded can't be being constructed in the middle of the storm. It needs to be set firmly in place beforehand so that it can serve as that sure and steadfast anchor in the midst of whatever turmoil we might experience. Well, in our text this morning, Paul seeks to lay just such a foundation for the Philippians in order to equip them to suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's clear from the context of this passage that the saints in Philippi were experiencing opposition for their commitment to Jesus Christ. Verse 28 speaks of their opponents. Verse 29 speaks of suffering for Christ's sake. And Paul says in verse 30 that they're experiencing the same conflict that he experienced. You see, rather than being proud and dutiful slaves of Caesar, whom the Romans hailed as their Lord and Savior... The Philippians were now the faithful slaves of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rather than being devoted citizens of the Roman Empire, the Philippians were now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, conduct was to be regulated and ruled by the gospel of Christ. As slaves of Christ, the Philippians were called to such purity of lifestyle that there was an evident difference between them and their pagan neighbors. 
So much so that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul calls them children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And we were reminded last time of Jesus' own words in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, that the darkness hates the light because the light exposes their deeds as evil. The Apostle Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4, 4, that when we who are saved no longer run into the same excesses of dissipation, he says, when faithful Christians no longer participate in the same sins that we once participated in, in the same sins that the unbelieving world still participates in, they're surprised and they malign you, he says. This is what the Philippians were facing. Since they had been called out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light, they began to face the threat of opposition from the darkness around them. And in this context of opposition, Paul tells them what it means to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he gives them three specific applications which we looked at last time. Just to recap, faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to be marked, number one, by a unified steadfastness. They are, verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit. And they are to be marked, number two, by a unified aggressiveness, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And they are to be marked, number three, by a resolute fearlessness, verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. They were to hold their ground amidst attacks to compromise. They were to continue in their mission to propagate the gospel behind enemy lines. And they were to do it all without so much as flinching because the king of heaven remains on his throne and he is infinitely more powerful than any opposing force could ever dream to be. And we celebrated that fact together at the end of our last time in Philippians. The hymn writer speaks from God's perspective, taking from the text in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, when he says, Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And Yahweh tells Joshua, just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you, so be strong and courageous. And after the resurrection, Jesus commissions his disciples to preach the gospel and make disciples in Matthew 28. And the first thing he says is, I'm in control of everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then the very last thing he says is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I control everything and I'm with you. So go and fulfill your mission. And Paul picks up on that. And he says, you Philippians, you stand firm and hold your ground. Keep striving together to preach the gospel and don't fear any opposition because though suffering will come to the faithful soldier of Christ Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe is with you in all of your suffering. But now we come to verses 29 and 30. And Paul throws more fuel on the fire of the Christian's fearlessness in the face of opposition to the gospel. We can suffer for the gospel's sake with resolute fearlessness, not only because the Lord is with us in our suffering, but also because the Lord has ordained our suffering and has graciously granted our trials to us as a gift. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What we have in this text are four truths about Christian suffering. Four truths about Christian suffering that increase the believer's resolve to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because both for the Philippians and for us, part of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel. And my prayer for all of us as we hear from God's word this morning is that properly apprehending these four truths about Christian suffering will put a holy fire in our eyes 
We'll put steel in our spine so that when, we, when suffering comes, as we seek to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the spheres of life, that we will be undeterred, fearless in the face of that suffering and thereby be equipped to live and to suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here I need to make a little disclaimer. When I speak of suffering throughout this sermon, I'm speaking about Christian suffering. I'm not speaking about the ordinary disturbances of life and trials that we all experience, though Scripture has much to say about our comfort in those situations as well. But this text, in this context of opposition, and with the repeated phrase, for Christ's sake, in verse 29, which we'll discuss in more detail later, Paul is speaking exclusively about the suffering that believers experience as a result of the opposition from the adversaries of Christ. Doesn't mean that what we say won't have applicability to other kinds of suffering. We need to be faithful to the context of this text and note that we're talking about Christian suffering, suffering for Christ's sake, and we'll hit more on that as we go farther. Well, having noted that, then we come to the first truth about Christian suffering that we'll observe from this text. Number one, suffering is a mark of Christian identity. Suffering is a mark of Christian identity. Now, the key to understanding that is to see the strict parallelism and the close connection between believing in Christ and suffering for Christ's sake in verse 29. Look again at verse 29. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. My dear friends, though many who name the name of Christ would want to deny this, we must make no mistake. Suffering for Christ's sake is a mark of Christian identity. And this is established everywhere, everywhere else throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself spoke of this reality in that familiar text in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. Turn there with me. John chapter 15 is part of that upper room discourse as Jesus prepares his followers to live life with him, without him. And he says, John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, if the world hates you, and the Greek construction there implies, and it will, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute his followers. Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote to suffering Christians in 1 Peter chapter 4, with the text that Devraj read to us earlier. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Do you hear Peter's reasoning there? Don't be surprised as if persecution were strange. This is normal for the follower of Christ. If they persecute him, they'll persecute his followers. And this close connection between salvation and suffering is also evident in other of Paul's letters. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 16 and 17. Paul testifies that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And the reality that suffering is, is a mark of Christian identity is perhaps nowhere clearer than 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul states plainly and emphatically, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no wiggle room there. Not all Christians who live in closed countries will be persecuted. Not all pastors and missionaries will be persecuted. 
Not all super spiritual, super evangelistic, super Christians will be persecuted. No. All who desire to live godly, that's it. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. Because the kind of life that is commanded of those who would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel sticks in the craw of the enemies of righteousness and indicts their sinful lifestyle by exposing it in the light of holy living. Now you ask, how in the world is telling them that suffering is certain supposed to comfort them and strengthen them to face persecution? Lord, we're, we're being persecuted. Don't be surprised. That's normal. How's that supposed to be a comfort? That seems almost a little sharp. It's comforting because Paul is telling them that suffering for Christ in the way that they have been and in the way that they will continue to suffer is an identifying mark of one who truly belongs to Christ. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for Christ's sake. Suffering for Christ marks you out as a true believer. John Calvin put it beautifully in his commentary on this passage. He says, persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption to the children of God. If they endure them with fortitude and patience, their adoption can no more be separated from sufferings than Christ can be a torn asunder from himself. Suffering for Christ's sake is the seal of our adoption into God's family. It's our birthright as children of God. It's our badge of authenticity that we're real and not just phonies and not just talking the talk. Back to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4. Don't be surprised as if this was something strange, but verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that at the, also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So here's the why. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of grace rests on you in those trials. And so Paul tells the Philippians, this kind of suffering that you experience for Christ's sake at the hands of the adversaries of the gospel is, Philippians 1.28, an evident token, a sign from God for your salvation. For, because to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Because the God who has given you salvation has with that gift also graced you to be Christ's people in the world, which means that you will suffer for his sake just as he did for yours and just as I, Paul, do for you as well. The question then that you have to ask yourself is, are you suffering for his sake? Now, I don't mean to imply that the only kind of suffering that qualifies here is martyrdom or imprisonment or physical abuse. Very few of us in America will have suffered for Christ in such ways, although, as I mentioned last time, I do believe those days are drawing to a close. But I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about the kind of social ostracism and opposition that comes from your faithfully and obediently following Christ in the various spheres of your life. Do you know what it is to be shunned as a hateful bigot because you refuse to compromise on the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality? Men, do you know what it is like to be mocked as a prude because you won't join the men at work in making sexual comments and evaluations of this woman or that actress? Ladies, do you know the alienation and the looks of bewilderment from other wives and mothers who don't complain about their husbands? Do you know what it is to be looked upon by the sophisticated minds of society as knuckle-dragging Neanderthal fundamentalists because you won't compromise on the scriptural teaching about men's and women's roles, both in marriage and in the church? Or because you won't compromise on scripture's teaching about God creating the universe in six literal 24-hour days? When you pour your heart out to someone, proclaiming the gospel to them, 
lovingly and sincerely entreating them and begging them to forsake their sin, to flee from the wrath to come and to run to the everlasting joy and satisfaction that is found in the salvation of Christ. Only to have them mock you as a narrow-minded bigot who just wants to control people and make everyone believe the same as you do. Do you know that feeling of being aliens and strangers in the world? Do you know the pain of knowing that you are far, far from home? Or can you fit right in? I mean, you go to church on Sundays, maybe Bible study one night every other week. But for the rest of your time in the world, you are just as comfortable as can be. Have you so domesticated your faith? Have you so compartmentalized your relationship with Jesus Christ that no one can tell the difference between you, a professed follower of the Lord Jesus, and a pagan who loves and serves himself? No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Do you stick out as a light among the darkness? Or can you get along with absolutely everybody because you've been unwilling to stand publicly for anything that would bring any sort of contradiction and, uh, and inconvenience for Christ's sake. We need to hear this, brothers and sisters. We need to hear this because this kind of convenient, well-to-do, socially acceptable, pasted smile, spectator kind of Christianity that provokes no hostility from the enemies of the gospel, Paul says, is a sham. Because to you, it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so suffering is a mark of Christian identity. The second truth about Christian suffering that we can observe from this text is that suffering is a gift of divine grace. Suffering is a gift of divine grace. Look with me again at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe, but to suffer. So we've established that suffering inevitably comes to the true believer in Christ. But the question is, where does it come from? Does it originate merely in the hostility of the opponents themselves? Does it come from a random, chaotic, uncontrolled universe so that we've simply drawn the short straw and we have to make the best of all things? Does it come from some impersonal force like fate, so that, you know, we just have to grin and bear it. It's our lot in life. We need to accept it. Does suffering ultimately come from Satan or demons? Ultimately, we have to answer no to all of those questions. Ultimately, suffering comes from God. You say, how do you know that? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is that Scripture calls God the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. And we know, don't we, Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just what we would call the good things, and not God turns all the bad things into good things for those who love him, you know, Bad things are happening to the people, so I guess I got I to turn this, to this in, into good. No, no, no. God doesn't just make the best out of a bad hand he was dealt. He ordains all things for his purpose to glorify himself. Isn't that what Joseph said? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil, my brothers, but God what? Meant it for good. A few chapters earlier, Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph tells his brothers, it was not you who sent me here into slavery, into Egypt, but God. Genesis 45, verse 8. Job says the same thing. Job 121, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Job 2.10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from him as well? And as Jeremiah stands in the rubble of the ravaged city of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian invasion, he asks, Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill 
go forth. But even if I didn't have all those verses to turn to and more, you know how else I know that suffering for Christ ultimately comes from God? Because Philippians 1.29 says it has been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer. Who has granted us to believe? Fate? Demons? Satan? No. God has granted us faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And in the same way, it is God who grants us to suffer. This suffering ultimately comes from God. But how? How does it come from God? In what manner? Does it come from a, a cold, disinterested deity with no heart or feeling for his people? Does it come as a divine punishment as a result of some moral or ministerial failure so that you know when you're suffering, God is punishing you? Does God merely allow suffering as if it never entered into his mind that to have his people suffer by, until some, something or someone external to him came to him and said, and asked for permission? Here again, we've got to answer all of these questions in the negative. Why? Because it has been granted to us to suffer. And that word granted is the Greek verb charizomai from charis, which is the New Testament word for grace. It means to give as a gift or to freely give. It's the same word in Romans 8.32 where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Dear friends, what Paul is teaching us here is that the suffering that comes upon the people of God as a result of their faithful obedience to Christ in a hostile world is nothing less than a free gift of sovereign grace. And I ask you, does God give poor gifts? Does God give gifts that are without purpose and without wisdom? Does he ever give gifts that are not beneficial and for the greatest good of those he gives them to? You know that he doesn't. You know that all of God's gifts to his children are for our good. Well, this text tells us that God gives us suffering for Christ's sake as a gift of his loving, unmerited favor. Now, if some of you are sitting here and thinking, well, what kind of favor is that? Suffering? If you're thinking that, I want you to know that the apostles would have had absolutely no idea where you were coming from. None. Turn to Acts chapter 5. The Sanhedrin had already thrown the apostles into prison for violating their command not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus. But the angel of the Lord came in the middle of the night and freed them. And the next morning, they're back in the temple preaching like nothing had happened. And so the Jews came to them and called them before the council again. And after some discussion there in chapter 5 about what should be done to them, look at verse 40. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So, verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Our generation of so-called Christians seeks to run from shame as far and as fast as possible as if it was a pure, unmixed evil. The apostles' generation rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to receive the divine favor of suffering shame for the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may God grant that we see the glory that they saw so that we would be so satisfied by Christ that we would count it a privilege to meet the world's shame if it means that we can put that glory on display. Years after being flogged that day, Peter would write, 1 Peter 4, again, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And I can't help but imagine that as he wrote those words, he felt the tingle in his back again from that beating. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he says, he is not to be ashamed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name, to praise God that you bear the name of Christ. Why should we view suffering as a as a divine gift of grace, as a high honor and a privilege. Now, again, a couple reasons. First, 
Suffering is a means of conforming us to the image of Christ. Verse we all know well, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering conforms us to the image of Christ. Second, suffering is a means of increased fellowship with Christ. Paul speaks of the driving passion of his life in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you want to live with him, you want to be raised with him, you've got to die with him. We know Christ more deeply when we partake in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we'll talk more about that just a bit later on. And finally, we should view suffering as a high honor and privilege because it provides us a wonderful opportunity, as I said just before, to put the worth and sufficiency of Jesus Christ on display. An opportunity to magnify him by being more satisfied in him than by all that life can offer and all that death can take. You're all familiar with that hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Do you remember verse 3? His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. John Piper writes, if we hold fast to him when all around our soul gives way, then we show that he is to be more desired than all that we have lost. And friends, magnifying Christ, it's what we were created to do. There is no greater joy than knowing Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and then making him known through our sufferings as we follow him. That's what we were created to do. Don't you see it's a gift to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's a gracious gift of unmerited favor to be given the privilege of being prisms to reflect the light of the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus to the world. And so when suffering and persecution come from those who would oppose Jesus Christ and his gospel, and when it gets hard, and when it starts to hurt and threatens those things and those people whom you love the most and treasure the most, if you're suffering for Christ's sake, and if you're suffering for the gospel's sake, don't try to save God from his sovereignty by cutting the legs out from under the theology of sovereign grace. You would destroy the very comfort that you seek if you did that. Instead, count that suffering as a gracious gift direct from the loving, sovereign, mighty, all, infinite, wise hand of your Father, then you would suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, we've seen truth number one, that suffering is a mark of Christian identity. We've just learned truth number two, that suffering is a gift of divine grace. The third truth about Christian suffering that Paul teaches us in this text is that Christian suffering is endured for Christ's sake. Christian suffering is endured for Christ's sake by definition. Read with me verse 29 one last time. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You can hear that repetition twice in the same sentence you have, for Christ's sake, or, or on the behalf of Christ, literally. Paul actually uses an intentionally awkward grammar to emphasize that the suffering he's speaking about is suffering that is endured on the behalf of Christ. Now, I won't spend much time belaboring this because I've been mentioning it throughout, but this is the exegetical justification for my relating everything that I've said so far this morning about suffering to the suffering that comes upon believers, particularly as a result of opposition to the gospel. This is persecution in the more narrow sense. And one commentator puts it helpfully when he says, the suffering in view here is not the everyday headaches and heartaches. Suffering on behalf of Christ is caused by public identification with Christ in a world hostile to Christ. Some of you and some of your dear family members 
are suffering from chronic pain, whether emotional pain or physical pain. And the Bible has glorious truths and promises about how to respond righteously to that kind of suffering. And certainly the truths that we've already observed this morning can be, if carefully, legitimately applied to those circumstances, but that is not the kind of suffering that's view in, this, in view in this text. In no way alarmed by your opponents, Paul says in verse 28. And like the other truths we've explored this morning, this one also enjoys testimony from the rest of the New Testament. From the t for the sake of time, we won't turn to these texts, but be sure to note the references for further study and listen to the repeated emphasis as I read them. Matthew 5, 10 and 11. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Mark 8.35, familiar phrase, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 10.29, truly I say to you, Jesus says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundredfold. John 15.21, we read it earlier. After saying that the world will hate and persecute his disciples, Jesus says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. And one we've come back to you multiple times already this morning, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Don't be surprised as if something strange was happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If you suffer that way, that's no thank to you. That's no good comment on your character. That's, there's no promise of comfort for that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And so when I say that we need to shine as lights in a dark world, I don't simply mean that we have to be different in some general sense. You cannot claim these promises of comfort for suffering for the sake of a generic morality that holds doors and pulls out chairs and doesn't use foul language and is just generally respectable to the people that you meet. Friends, in the horizontal, man-to-man -man relationships, even pagans can be moral people. What Paul is calling us to is the kind of suffering that happens distinctly for those who would follow Christ, that happen because on behalf of Christ. And when I say that we need to eschew this convenient kind of Christianity that provokes no hostility, I don't mean that provoking hostility is in and of itself a virtue. If you suffer hostility because you're belligerent and annoying, or if you stick out from the world just because you're a strange person, that's not Christian suffering. I love what one preacher said. He says, this is not a Christian kookishness that counts it the highest virtue to go around disturbing people by being different. No, this is suffering particularly and specifically as a result of our attachment and our likeness and our commitment to Christ. And so our suffering is to be endured for Christ's sake. And friends, I ask you, is there anything that you cannot endure for his sake? Is there anything that you cannot bear for the sake of the one who bore the unfettered wrath of his father that he never deserved to know in the place of guilty, sinful, impure, unholy, treasonous rebels like you and me so that we could be purified, reconciled as friends seated around the table of the king, like the song says? To bear approach for his sake, it's no trouble at all. What are the frowns of a few fellow mortals if I can see his smile? What are the frowns of a few fellow mortals if I can know him? If I can walk more closely and more intimately with the Savior who is the apple of my eye, who is the very bottom of all my joy, the very bedrock foundation of all my comfort, surely, 
we can endure suffering. Surely we can endure suffering for his sake. Well, so far we've learned, number one, that suffering is a mark of Christian identity. Number two, that suffering is a gift of divine grace. And number three, that suffering is endured for Christ's sake. The fourth truth about Christian suffering that will prepare us to suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel is that suffering is a means to sweet fellowship. Suffering is a means to sweet fellowship. Look with me at verse 30. It's granted to you to suffer experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What we see here in verse 30 is what one writer calls a masterful stroke of pastoral comfort on the, on the part of the Apostle Paul. After comforting his friends by reminding them that the suffering that they face is a gift of divine favor from their loving Father on behalf of their cherished Savior, he now comforts them by reminding them that he himself has experienced the very same kinds of suffering that they are going through and that he continues to experience such suffering as well. Now, why is that such a stroke of a masterful stroke of pastoral comfort? Well, we've mentioned plenty of times in our studies of Philippians that the unique bond of affection that Paul and the Philippians shared was indeed unique. This is the most intensely personal of all of his letters, Philippians is. I mean, the Philippians had participated in, in Paul's ministry in a way that no other church had, he says in chapter 4. There wasn't another person on the planet that the Philippians loved more or had a greater affection for than the Apostle Paul. And here he tells them that they are engaged in the very same conflict, in the very same struggle that he was engaged in, that they witnessed in him when, when he founded the church at Philippi, and that they would now hear about him as report returned with Epaphroditus as he delivered the letter. He tells them that they are his brothers in arms. They would remember it like it was yesterday, the beatings and the imprisonments that Paul suffered at the hands of the crowds in Philippi. We read about them in Acts 16. Paul certainly remembered those beatings and imprisonment as he wrote to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul speaks about how he had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi and faced much opposition there. He thought enough of it to tell the Thessalonians about it. Now, at this point, as at the time that they get the letter, they're hearing of his resolute fearlessness in the midst of his continued sufferings, his resolve to magnify Christ in his body, whether by life or by death, and his preaching of the gospel to the conversion of many in the Praetorian Guard. And as they think of all this amazing suffering endured for the sake of the gospel, I am sure that they came to regard Paul just like we do, as a hero as a kind of quasi-celebrity, but in a good sense. And Paul is saying, you're now experiencing that very same thing. What happened to me is happening to you. And the Philippians would have been thrilled to hear that because there is a sweet fellowship that exists between brothers and sisters who suffer together for the sake of the gospel. And I think that their knowing that Paul regarded them as having that kind of fellowship with him would have strengthened their hand to stand firm, to continue striving together, and to be courageous and undaunted in the face of opposition. And friends, it should be no different for us. We should be enticed, wooed, to a resolute fearlessness in the face of opposition by knowing that suffering on behalf of Christ is a means of sweet fellowship with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, all of the faithful soldiers of Christ who have been engaged in this same conflict. I mean, just think about it. Justin Martyr, Polycarp of Smyrna, Ignatius of Antioch, fast forward, John Huss, the precursor to the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Rogers, William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, John Knox, all of these that we could just go through Fox's Book of Martyrs. All of these and thousands of others of whom the world was not worthy, who didn't love their lives even unto death, are our brothers in arms, our band of brothers. And suffering, even for us, is not just a means of sweet fellowship with other believers, but of, with the Apostle Paul himself. 
This is a man who laid down his life to travel the known world, who endured all manner of hostility, who wrote half the New Testament, and who is a spiritual hero to every Christian who ever lived. And we can spend our lives suffering for the same gospel mission that he suffered for. That is amazing. In Grace Life, I want to know, do you want your life to count for something? Do you want to live so that you don't waste your life? Do you want to invest yourselves to spend and be spent for something that is truly worthwhile and meaningful, something that will outlast this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal? I mean, talk about being part of something that's bigger than you. We can be engaged in the very same conflict as the Apostle Paul himself, provided that we follow him as he followed Christ and lay down our lives to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in a way that cuts straight across the grain of the culture that you live in. And it gets better. That's not all. The suffering that you experience for Christ's sake not only provides you with the opportunity for a unique and intimate fellowship with other faithful soldiers of Christ throughout the ages, it also provides you with the opportunity for a unique and intimate fellowship with Christ himself. When we become willing to follow Jesus in his footsteps, to preach his gospel, to walk in holiness just as he walked, We will provoke the hostility from sinners against us as we're hostile against him. And encountering Christ is more satisfying than all that this life can offer and all that death can take. We suffer for the same cause of righteousness for the Lord himself, the creator of the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what it means, Philippians 3.10, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, It means a a camaraderie, a unique intimacy that we can have with our Savior by sharing in the sufferings that he experienced. Now, obviously, it's not the same exact sufferings. None of us can bear the wrath of the Father the way he did. But that's not what they're saying. It's saying suffering for the gospel's sake, suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for his sake, bearing his reproach. Paul says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And that should be an enormous amount of fuel to lay down our safe, comfortable lives and to lose our lives for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake. It is worth, oh, it is worth enduring all manner of hostility and unpleasant circumstances if we get to know him more intimately because of them. If we get to see more of him in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise seen if we kept ourselves in the safety of our Christian bubble. Are you willing to lay down your life for Christ? Not only in death, but in living. Are you willing to lay down your life so that everything you do is lived for his sake? Are you willing to go to him and bear his reproach? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I've mentioned this verse, I think, once in each of the last two sermons, and I'm going to mention it here again, and I never have turned to it and read from it so that you can see it with your eyes, but I want to do that now. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews is continuing to draw parallels between Old Testament sacrifices and the Lord Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. And he makes this point in verses 11 and 12 that just as the sacrifices were burned outside the camp of Israel, signifying a place of uncleanness and shame that was cut off from the community of God's people as a result of sin. So was Jesus sacrificed outside of the camp of Israel in hostile territory. And then in verses 13 and 14, he gives the implications of that for the church. And it's marvelous. Hebrews 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You see, we are to leave the securities and the comforts of the camp And we are to go out and bear his reproach. 
But the magnificent sweetness of this verse is that we do not simply go out, but that we go out to him. He is out there on that road of suffering. Jesus is out there waiting for you on that path of suffering endured for the sake of the gospel. And he is calling us to come and enjoy the sweetness of that fellowship of his sufferings. And in response to that call, the hymn writer writes in my favorite hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Go. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. And then the, the writer looks to, to God and says, In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. With thy favor, loss is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things so that I might gain Christ. Oh, may this be true. May God grant that this be true of us, Grace Life. May God grant that it be true of us. Pray with me. God grant that it be true of us. Satisfy us with your loving kindness so much that in thy service pain is pleasure and with thy favor loss is gain. Show us the glory of Christ that we might go out to him and bear his reproach, not fearing anything, in no way alarmed by our opponents with a resolute fearlessness and undaunted courageousness that goes out to him because we count him more satisfying than all that this life can offer us and all that death can take from us. Lord Jesus, show yourself to us so marvelous. Overcome the sinfulness of our hearts. Overcome the scales that are on our eyes that would detract and distract us from your glory. Give us eyes to see. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word and a wonderful Savior in your word. Oh, may we be found faithful because we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.